Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Welcome to the Business Power Hour. I'm your host, Jackie Cameron, standing in for your regular Business Power Hour host, Alec Hogg, who is taking a much-deserved break this week. We've got a cracking show for you tonight, ahead of the Youth Day holiday. Delphine Govender, CEO of Perpetua Investment Managers, updates us on the battle royale between shareholders and the top team running NASPERS and Process. We hear harsh words from former Finance Minister Trevor Manuel about how South Africa was run into the ground by his ANC comrades. Last but not least, in-depth insights on the Nasper saga and the fascinating deal between Alexander Forbes and Sunlam, and more from my co-host Stephen Nathan, one of South Africa's most highly regarded independent investment experts. First, the market report from business reporter Nadia Swart. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. The JC All Share Index was down today at 67,363. Pepco was up by 4.7% to 21 rand per share. Karoo was up by 3.6% to 549 rand per share. SAPI was down by 4% to 39 rand per share. And APSA was down by 4% to 141 rand 34 cents per share. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 13 rand 79 to the dollar, 19 rand 43 to the pound, and 16 rand 73 to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,864 an ounce. Brent crude is higher at $73.95 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency will put you back 554,000 rand of Bitcoin and one Kruger rand will cost you 26,945. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Coming up, the main news headlines of the day. Tencent Investor Process has agreed to buy a majority stake in European online employee training platform Good Habits for 212 million euros, extending the e-commerce giant's push into education, reports Bloomberg. The deal will be used to accelerate the expansion of Good Habits, Netherlands-based Process said in a statement on Tuesday. It follows the $1.8 billion acquisition of tech knowledge sharing site Stack Overflow in the US earlier this month. Process was an early investor in education technology and has committed more than $3 billion in the sector since 2016. The company says the pandemic has accelerated the shift to online learning as people stuck at home look to improve their skill set. Other process sites include Udemy and Skillsoft. ESCOM CEO Andre Dureta has been facing death threats and unfounded allegations after starting a cleanup operation at the power utility. This was revealed in a News24 interview where he discussed his work to turn around the company, which has been gutted by corruption and mismanagement. The interview took place less than two weeks after senior counsel Ishmael Semenya found that allegations against the Reza were without substance. Commenting on the allegations and death threats against him, Dereta said it has a momentary impact, but then what ultimately motivates me is to prove my detractors and critics wrong, and then I carry on, he told News24. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson is expected to announce a four-week extension in pandemic restrictions beyond June the 21st because of a surge in the Delta variant. Meanwhile, Mauritius, which has been closed to international visitors throughout the pandemic, will reopen its borders to vaccinated tourists on the 15th of July. South Africans, however, are excluded from this reopening and will still be banned from entering Mauritius even if they have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. This is according to Business Insider. And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Nadja Swat for Biz News. For more on these and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Joining me now is Stephen Nathan, a financial services entrepreneur who brought lower-cost investing to the retirement annuity investors through a company he founded, 10X. Stephen is also a highly regarded investment analyst. 
Um, Stephen, let's start with the news this week that Alexander Forbes uh, plans to sell a stake of its business to Sunlum for about 100 million rand for a business with premium income of 1 billion rand. Can you just uh, explain to people who aren't close to a life company the relevance of the sale? So Alexander Forbes, Jackie, um, you know, has a name, a household name really, as an administrator of pension funds in South Africa. They are the largest pension fund administrator, but they've, you know, over the years, they've diversified that business very significantly. So so not only within pension funds, they've gone into investment management. They have a, a large multi-manager. Um, they've gone into uh, insurance. They had a short-term insurance business. They have a life insurance business. They went into Africa and they went overseas. Uh, a lot of that they did actually wasn't 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 very good. Um, so they are they are exiting a lot of those businesses to get back to kind of their core, what they call this sort of advice business uh, for clients, both retirement fund clients, so pension funds and also individuals. And they've been selling off these these non-core businesses and they sold off their life insurance, uh, their short-term insurance business to Momentum. I think it was about 600 million rand roughly. I think that was uh, that price. And now they're selling off their life insurance business. So this is a business that underwrites life insurance that takes the actual risk when claims go badly, then they obviously have uh, underwriting losses. Um, but it's also a very capital intensive business. So you need to hold quite a lot of regulatory capital. So they are trying to move away from the so-called capital heavy businesses to capital light business and focus much more on kind of services as opposed to a capital a capital led business. And you mentioned the price, a hundred million. It does look low because just if you look at that business a few years ago, if we go back to uh, I think it's about 2017, you know that business was making, uh, sorry, 2019, that business was making an, uh, an operating profit of about 90 million rand. Uh, now, that's before some costs, but, you know, this it does look like uh, it's a business that has, has suffered uh, in the last few years, um, but, the, but the price does look, uh, does look low from the outside, but one would expect that internally they would have done a proper, you know, thorough, uh, uh, corporate finance sale and a, uh, and an arm's length sale and gone to see tested in the marketplace because there is always this little bit of concern that Sunlum uh, and uh, Alexander Forbes and throw in African Rainbow Capital are all very close. There's cross shareholdings and businesses being bought and sold amongst each other and it just so happens to be that uh, Sunlum uh, is the buy on this occasion. But and I would expect that uh, from a corporate governance perspective, there was uh, an arm's length uh, sale that has taken place there. Stephen, that's very interesting that you mentioned the relationship with African Rainbow. Can you just tell a bit, tell us a bit more for our listeners who aren't familiar with the the close uh, friendships that have moved from Sunlum to African Rainbow, and then perhaps stretching into uh, Alexander Forbes as well, and why this might be problematic? Yes, listen, it it could read like a soap opera, and maybe one day there will be a series a series on it. But it goes back many years to the early 2000s when, when Sunlum first did their major empowerment deal, uh, they bought on board a, uh, an empowerment consortium that was headed by Patrice Metzepe. It wasn't only him, that was a broad-based consortium, but one never really knows who, who gets what in these consortiums, what, what share. But uh, that introduced um, empowerment shareholding of about, I think it was 10% at the time, led by Patrice Metzepe. Um and uh, that stake has done very well over the last probably almost almost 20 years now, not quite, probably 15, 16 years. It's done very well. So, so as an empowerment uh, shareholder, in fact, as any shareholder, you get dividends and you can, you can reinvest those dividends. And, and what, um, uh, what Patrice Masepa has done is he, as part of uh, uh, ventures, is they formed African Rainbow Capital, which is a black, empower, black empowered uh, investment vehicle. Uh, and and that was funded by, in large part, by the proceeds of the dividends that that he would have earned, his company would have earned from Sunlum. So it's kind of Sunlum sort of funded this 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 company called African Rainbow Capital. And then two very senior executives from Sunlum joined African Rainbow Capital. That was Johan van Sale, the chief executive, and Johan van Amerba, who ran Sunlum Investment Management. So there was a bit of a, <laughs> a management transfer that went out of Sunlum into African Rainbow Capital. African Rainbow Capital then invested 
uh, into uh, Alexander Forbes. So progressively, and today they own 35% of Alexander Forbes. So they are the single largest shareholder, African Rainbow Capital. And, and Sunam's also been selling some of its businesses, its investment management businesses into African Rainbow Capital. So now Sunam also has a stake into, into African Rainbow Capital. So, you know, there's, there's, there's inter, uh, well, there's uh, shareholdings between, you know, the three companies, there's management. In fact, Darby Root, who is the chief executive of Alexander Forbes. He was previously a senior person within Sunlam. So you can kind of see, you know, within this, I guess, triangle, there's a lot of uh, dividends flowing, cross shareholdings flowing, business sales flowing, uh, and, and, and people flowing as well. And then, which raises the question, was that a bit of a bargain price that they got? Well, as I say, I mean, from the outside, one, one, one can't tell, but I'm pretty certain, you know, they, 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 they very well of the scrutiny that a transaction like this would uh, attract given 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 the outcome given who the buyer and the seller is so i'm pretty certain they would have followed a you know a very rigorous uh and transparent process uh, uh with arm's length and you know in these sort of things uh, you want to be really careful especially if you're a listed company uh, you know directors that are because you have directors that are sitting in both companies or in three companies or related parties so you would you would expect that those directors uh, would not be part of those discussions. So it's called recusing. Those directors would recuse themselves, and I'm pretty certain that uh, you know they would have they would have followed that process. So these cozy relationships have they been good for the shareholders, particularly the smaller shareholders? Maybe not the management <laughs> shareholders. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult one because if you look, you know, Sunlam has been a very strong performer uh, in general. Sunlam over the last sort of sort of five ten years. Uh, has been the standout performer in you know within the life insurance sector. So if you're comparing, even if you're comparing against Discovery in the last five years, um, but certainly you know Sunlam has done uh, very well in a difficult sector compared to its peers. You know, definitely doing a lot lot better than Old Mutual and even better than Metropolitan and Liberty. So Sunlam has been a standout performer, and also these transactions are relatively small in Sunlam's life. Relatively small because. Uh, Sunlam has a market cap of well of, of over a hundred billion rand, whereas Alexander has a market cap. Alexander Forbes and and uh, uh, Oc uh, have market caps of about four to five billion. So these transactions tend to be much bigger in their lives than in Sunlam's lives. And if you look, Alexander Forbes has been a very poor uh, investment for shareholders for many many years. Um, you know, Alexander Forbes, their share price today is about, what's it? It's, it's, it's just, I think it's three rand, I see three rand 90. It's under four rand. Uh, and when it relisted, it was, I think, relisting at about eight, nine, 10 rand. So, so, and that was about five, six, six years ago. So it's kind of halved over the last uh, five, six years. So that's a terrible performance. Uh, and even before that, uh, before that, it was, it was under private equity for several years. And before private equity, it was, it was a listed company. And if you track its performance over the last 10 years, uh, Alexander Forbes has been a very, very uh, poor performer. So it's definitely uh, what we would call a recovery stock. We all hope that at some stage they are going to restructure the business and, and get a solid platform where they can sustainably grow earnings. Because if you look at their earnings, just as an example, they now reported it's hard to tell because they were continued and discontinued operations. But the bottom line is that the earnings per share was 14 cents uh, in 2021. And in 2016, the earnings per share was 62 cents. So, you know, you've seen kind of earnings per share go down three quarters. And even if you look at it on what, a, what they call a continuing basis, it's still 33 cents. So, so earnings have more than halved on whichever way you look to slice and dice it over five years. Uh, and then African Rainbow Capital has also not, uh, as, as, has not done well as a listed entity. Uh, and that trades at quite a big discount to its net asset value. I can't recall the exact number, but I think the management was valuing the net asset value at something like, it might have been up to 10, 11 rand, and the shares trading at about 4 rand. So that's trading at more than a 50% discount. So those two companies have not done very well uh, over the last uh, few years. Stephen, let's have a look at the NASPERS process uh, battle royal that is broken out between 36 asset managers and the top management team at NASPERS and its CEO, Bob Van Dijk, who's been criticized for basically being useless. What do you think about the management uh, style at NASPERS from an investor's perspective? Yeah, so, so you know, from an investor's perspective, um, you know, NASPERS has been a knockout performer uh, on the JSE, I mean, it, it, you know, it really has been um, uh, a share that has, you know, almost single-handedly 
you know, lifted the JSC over the last 20 years. The return, you know, its, it's, it's performance has been staggering, even on a global scale, if you compare it to, you know, people who had investors early stage in Google or Facebook, you know, the NASPES, because of their 10 cent investment, is one of the most legendary uh, transactions in the history of, of, of investing. You know, so South Africans, we have to be incredibly grateful and thankful for that because most pension funds and most investors will have some portion of uh, of NASPES in their portfolio. So, you know, the long term track record is 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 exceptional. You know, the concern really is over the last uh, over the last few years is is you know um, NASPES. What is the best way to unlock shareholder value? Because the bottom line is when you list a company uh, and and you have shareholders, your your primary objective or your responsibility to those shareholders is to maximize is to maximize uh, the return on the investment. And Naspers trades at a very substantial discount to its net asset value. In fact, even if you ignore uh, everything else other than ten cent, uh, it trades at something like a forty percent discount. To, to 10 cent. Now there's a little bit of tax, so, so it's not exactly 40%, it's a little bit less than that. But you know, nonetheless, is that it's a, it's a very sizable discount to net asset value. And as a, you know, so, so what a lot of uh, the shareholders, investors are saying is that the, the easiest way and guaranteed way to unlock value without taking any risk and risking our capital is just to unbundle uh, 10 cent. And by doing so, you know, you'd get an enormous uplift in the share price and you get a guaranteed, because the way it works is if it's, if it's if the value business is worth 100 and it's trading at 70 and it's a 30% discount, if you get back to 100, the 30 on the 70 is actually more than more than 30%. It's it's closer to, you know, it's, it's like 45%. So you can unlock enormous value that way. And what NASPES management is saying, no, 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 you know, we, we, we want to have another go at it. You know, we did such a great job with ten cent, and we want to try and find the next ten cent. Or we want to, you know, we fancy ourselves as very astute uh, private equity investors in the technology space and identifying these trends. And what we'd rather do is have a go at uh, using some of these proceeds and, you know, trying to find the next uh, uh, great uh, uh, technology company. And they've invested quite heavily in uh, delivery and in online platforms and in classifieds. Uh, and now uh, uh, more recently in education. So, you know, they're having that go. Um, and the problem is that uh, it's a risky strategy. It's an unproven strategy. And it's a and it's an expensive strategy in two ways. The one is that you're not unlocking the discount. So the share trades at a big, big discount. And then you've got management that are being paid quite a lot, take a lot of money in absolute terms. The numbers are quite staggering. I think it's over 100 million rand the CEO got. And you're kind of saying, well, if you, you're getting 100 million rand for sitting on a company that uh, that is actually destroying shareholder value, because as much as you say your efforts, um, you know, outside of of NASPES, the investments they've made, uh, they they a management shows charts and performance that in some ways looks very good. You know, like we've got you know twenty percent dollar returns on these investments. Uh, although I think some investors are saying, well, we're not actually as confident about management about with those numbers. But the, nonetheless, the market is not giving you any value for that. So as much as you keep on beating the drum, what a great job you're doing, you're doing, the market is saying something else, you know, and there's a bit of a conflict of interest because management is incentivized to look after themselves in this case, uh, which is really to say, if we unbundled, we wouldn't have a job and we wouldn't be getting these enormous salaries. Um, you know, so management is conflicted, but that's why you have a board because the board should be independent and should be looking after shareholders. And the main challenge I think we have with NASPES is that it has an end share structure. So it's got a low voting shares, and you have, uh, I think, Chris Becker and a few other people who actually control the votes in this company. So, you know, even if you've got over 50% economic interest, your voting interest is so small. And, you know, those are the people's minds you would have to uh, change to see, you know, to see this resolved. And then we've had some comments about the big asset managers uh, conspicuously avoiding joining the group that has been trying to push uh, for a different outcome from NAS, from the NASPERS uh, process restructuring. What is your view on that? Do you think that the likes of Alan Gray should also be joining the smaller asset managers to serve as stewards for their investors? Or do you think that there's a bit of a storm in a teacup here? Uh, well, it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to know uh, unless one hears from, from, from the different perspectives. But you know, typically, what happens is a large, you know, um, if you if you if you're a large fund manager, let's say you are an Alan Gray, 
uh, coronation, you know, where you're managing five, six hundred billion rand of assets, you're much more material in 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 a company's life. So you're much, you know, you, you're going to get much easier access to the decision makers. When you're a smaller player, uh, you regrettably you just don't get that kind of access, and your voice isn't heard. So you know what 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 is likely to have happened is that the bigger asset managers would have sort of had their one on ones. Uh, and they would have had, you know, the opportunity of engaging on a more direct and frequent basis. And the smaller asset managers, who are, you know, largely immaterial, uh, and you know what we call a rounding error, you know, they're owning you know, not even one percent, well less than one percent of NASPES. You know, they're just not big enough to be to be heard. So one can understand how they want to lobby together to to get a stronger voice and to have a stronger position, uh, and then. The bigger asset managers might say as well, you know, well, you know, we don't want to do this in a public forum. Uh, you know, we tend to we tend to find that we have more success uh, when we when we speak to management one on one, or we speak to the board one on one, and when we don't criticise them publicly. You know, so I'm sure that's sort of the line that uh, that the larger uh, asset managers would be uh, would be spinning. Um, you know, but um, uh, you know, as I said earlier, it's really about how do you unlock a shareholder value over here, and you know the easy way to do it, uh, the low risk way to do it is just to is just to uh, unbundle the shares, and you know that would that would help all shareholders, including the big asset managers. You know they would benefit as much, if not more, than the smaller asset managers by you know something like a 20, 30, or even potentially 40 percent immediate uplift in the share price. Um, and I think it, I think it's quite difficult for for any asset manager. To to say well no a better alternative uh, than this almost guaranteed in fact it is a guaranteed it's it guaranteed you would have a share price increase the actual quantum of the share price increase well if you unbundle the shares you'd you'd, you'd actually get at least thirty to forty percent uh, because of the immediate discount in uh, in ten cents so you you know that's guaranteed as it's, it's difficult for anyone to argue that well this is you know, this other strategy is going to unlock more than that because the problem with NASPES is its sheer size. You know, you're looking at a company, you know, that is that has got one and a half trillion rand market capitalization. You know, so to so, so to try and add ten percent to that, you know, ten percent would be bigger than Sunlam that we've just spoken about. You know, that's just ten percent. And if you're trying to say, well, we can do we can unlock more than a thirty percent discount in that, you know, that's a very tall order and there's a lot of risk and uncertainty associated with that. And moving on now to Trevor Manuel, our former finance minister and an ANC stalwart. He raised his head above the parapet recently and he granted an interview to the International Monetary Fund. And in a nutshell, he said that South Africa didn't just stagnate under former President Jacob Zuma. It actually regressed. From an investor's perspective, is it uh, comforting to you to hear uh, prominent politicians or people with power speaking like this about their party and about the country. Does this uh, help stimulate positive sentiment towards South Africa? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, that in and of itself that would uh, that would lead investors, either local or foreign, to to be more optimistic. Um, you know, the cynical person would say, well, you know, it's very brave of you, you know, years later when you're not in the party <laughs> and the president, you know, the person you're criticizing is long gone, you know, and there's very little repercussions, you know, where were you when it really mattered? Um, so, you know, I, I think that would be an issue for many, many politicians, uh, not just politicians, but while we're talking about politicians and, you know, business people as well, um, you know, where were you when this was all happening? Because this wasn't a secret to just about anyone. Um, so, so you know, that would, I guess, I guess, I guess that would, you know, be one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it would be to say, well, you know, at least there is still freedom of speech, and these people are still airing opinions, and you know, maybe we give people the benefit of the doubt. And you know, the more uh, the more um, criticism there is uh, by respected people of these sort of practices, and the more uh, people. Um, and the culture of South Africa is that this is unacceptable. You know, the more we talk about that, that that this is unacceptable behavior and it shouldn't be tolerated and we shouldn't repeat those mistakes. You know, hopefully that creates a, uh, you know, a much more, in, a much more conducive environment for, you know, for, 
for eliminating or reducing enormously the level of corruption and incompetence and wasteful expenditure so that we don't repeat these mistakes, you know, and then that would be a, you know, a, a, a much more positive sign. And maybe that's the way we should be interpreting this. Somebody that we hear a lot about when it comes to the where were you is President Cyril Ramaphosa. Where was he when he was the deputy president under Jacob Zuma? But lately we've seen a few steps in the right direction, you know, a change towards trying to improve the electricity problem. We've seen the uh, Minister of Health suspended while there's an investigation into corruption. Uh, It seems that the wheels of justice are starting to turn on corruption. What is your perception? And from an investment perspective, do you think these are going to help uh, boost confidence among foreign investors in South Africa? Uh, Yes, Jackie, I think that, you know, we, we're moving in the right direction. So, you know, um, the instances that you, that you raise, you know, the Zonda commission, hopefully coming to, to a close and, you know, that evidence being able to lead to successful prosecutions of people that are guilty of corruption. I think that'd be an enormous uh, positive step. Uh, you've mentioned, um, the, uh, the electricity or now we spoke about that, I think last week, um, you know, the private sector being able to uh, generate their own uh, electricity up to a certain uh, amount is extremely positive. And then more recently, the 51% sale of SAA, I think, is, 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 is very, very interesting. Um, it's, got some, it's got some airtime, but I don't think it's got enough airtime because, you know, that is a major uh, uh, privatization. Now, I know there's lots of, <laughs> lots of views on who's exactly buying it, but from, 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 from my understanding, that is a proper, you know, uh, privatization, and it's a huge step forward from where we've come from. So, you know, those are all really uh, positive signs, and we are moving in the right direction. But I think the challenge that South Africa has is that we are doing this of such a low base. You know, we've been we've been discredited in the international community and in the investment community for you know for 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 many years. Uh, now, some people might say, well, you know, maybe it's right or maybe it's wrong or maybe you didn't give us enough chance. You know, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that the perception of South Africa on a global scale is incredibly, incredibly low. And we've got a lot of work to do uh, to earn back uh, the, the, the respect and the trust and the confidence of the investment community. Even if you look, for example, at the rating agencies, you can see, you know, we, we, we are well below – uh, investment grade status, so we kind of in what what's called junk status, uh, but we're not just one level in junk status. We're quite a few levels down in junk status. So so there's a lot of work to do, but but there's no question that these are all really encouraging signs. And if we can continue to build on them, you know, then we definitely you know we 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 will see an improvement. But I don't think there's going to be any quick fixes given you know given um, the the position that. Uh, uh, we find ourselves in as a country and we're in that position because of a lot of the practices. And, uh, you know, we spoke about, or we, I think we talk about, I think it's nine years or the, you know, nine, 10 years of, uh, uh, uh the Zuma, you know, the Zuma years and, you know, that's not going to get undone very, very quickly. Delphine, before we get into the meat of, uh, Naspers response, could you perhaps just briefly sketch out what, is going on behind the scenes that has raised the alarm for you as a steward of shareholder funds? Sure. Um, well, I think firstly, you know, it's it, with, without trying to go too far back, I guess the reality is that um, there's a fantastic asset inside the NASPAS process, um, you know, corporate structure called Tencent, and it's, you know, delivered phenomenal returns to uh, kind of owners of that asset around the world, um, you know, for the last basically 20 years, effectively, since since NASPAS bought Tencent. Um, but the structures through which those returns are accessed are, have become quite convoluted and complicated to the point where where we sit here today in 2021 um, that the NASPAS entity trades at a significant discount to its its, its ownership in Tencent, the underlying asset, which is obviously the Chinese listed company. Um, and, and now we own that through process, which is a new entity that was that was installed um, just over two years ago. So process 
owns Tencent, Naspas owns 72% of, of Process, and Process trades at a discount to its um, ownership in Tencent, and then Naspas trades at a further discount to its ownership, both in, in, ten, in Process and then effectively in Tencent. So the question that has been plaguing shareholders has been why these discounts continue to exist and what management's um, kind of intentions are and actions are to assist in the, in, the, in the unlock. Now, we've got quite a few reasons for why we think they exist, but um, but if we had to just locate the concerns to this specific transaction. So um, in May um, this year, uh, NASPAS and Process Management came out with a transaction that they basically said, currently remember, NASPAS owns about 73% of Process. Uh, process is um, is held, you know, is listed, you know, uh, on, on on the international stock market. NASPAS is listed in South Africa, um, and it has a very wide public shareholding. Um, effectively, what the transaction was that Process would make an offer to buy um, 45% of NASPAS's shares, such that the eventual outcome would be that NASPAS's public shareholding would reduce to about 50% versus the 96%. Um, the rationale was that NASPAS's weight in the South African and the JSC would reduce. Um, and then NASPAS's stake in process reduces from around the 73% level to around the 50 uh, 50%. 7% level. Um, but in order to achieve that, there would now be a cross-shareholding where NASPAS owns 57% of Process and Process owns about 50% or 49% of NASPAS. Um, so the, the net effect um, is is is, is uh, that the reason advanced for the net for the for the for the transaction is to reduce the, the significant weight NASPAS has in the South African market. But the effect of it um is also that it really, as I've explained, increases complexity. And if you just think simply from a shareholder's point of view, we're just trying to understand how do we unlock the current 50-odd percent discount. NASPAS currently trades at a 50-odd percent discount to its underlying you know, investments. Um, and that we cannot see how this transaction serves to sustainably unlock that discount. Um, and we, we were being concerned, and it's not just you know a grouping, several shareholders are, are perplexed as to why this transaction would be put on the table um, to advance the overall big picture, which is to unlock the discounts that exist. Um, and so that's why there's been the, the problem we have, um, if I may continue, is that the way the transaction is set up is that only the shareholders and process actually need to vote to approve the transaction. Um, and because, as I mentioned, NASPAS is by far the biggest shareholder in process, and NASPAS, as you would know, historically has a high voting structure. So the economic ownership in NASPAS of shareholders does not correspond to the votes. Um, effectively, the process transaction is a fait accompli because NASPAS will just vote in favor of the transaction because of the related parties. Um, and the only thing that shareholders have in NASPAS is if you don't think um, that, and there's another nuance, is that the ratio at which you're getting some process in exchange for your NASPAS, um, individuals or shareholders don't believe it's a fair ratio because NASPAS is trading at a far bigger discount to its um, kind of underlying NAV or net asset value compared to what process is. So you're swapping something that's trading at a 50% discount for something that's trading effectively at a 35% discount. So you're losing some of that unlock that you might have been holding NASPAS for. Uh, you kind of kept trapping it. Um, the only thing that would that you you believe you would do that is if you felt the NASPAS or the process discount would trade would would uh, significantly and sharply close. But again, it's hard to see because they've just added this cross holding in, which adds complexity, not simplicity. Um, and the, so the last point is that the only real thing that NASPAS shareholders have, the NASPAS in shareholders have, is that they can decide that the transaction, they could effectively not tender their shares. It's voluntary. So you can choose not to tender your shares, your 45 of your 100 shares that you own. Um, if that doesn't happen, then effectively this transaction doesn't go through. Now, obviously, there are insiders. There are insiders in NASPERS who want the transaction to go through, so we would expect them to tender their shares. Um, but there are enough shareholders outside that might not want to. There's a there's a there's a phenomenon here though, which I'm sure NASPAS management are aware of, which is basically what we would call a prisoner's dilemma if you're a NASPAS shareholder, in that it's only going to work for you if everyone decides not to tender their shares. But if 
everyone tenders their shares and you decide to take kind of a stance and say this is wrong, uh, I'm not tendering my shares, you actually end up being worse off as the shareholder who holds the 100 and doesn't tender 45 versus the others who might tender it. So it really ends up being this, this prisoner's dilemma. And the only thing that you would really have going for you is if all the shareholders um, that were dissatisfied all said they weren't tendering their shares and actually did not tender their shares. Um, but again, so do you have enough support? Well, it's, it's not, you know, it's not just the the interesting thing is that I was just assisting in the, in the facilitation that South African, um, you know, shareholders are and institutional shareholders are not, uh, not used to collaborating in big groups. We tend to collaborate in small groups of like five to six or seven. Um, this was the biggest kind of big group collaboration, if I think of over 35. So it was just really needed a facilitator because we don't really have formal structures. Um, and the idea being that ultimately each investor will have to decide for themselves what they do. But as I've explained, when it comes down to the final kind of analysis, I think management themselves know that each investor faces this prisoner's dilemma, that they don't actually know that no, the shareholders can't necessarily all agree to voting in a certain, well, there's no vote. You just have to, on the day or at the, you know, when you have to make a decision, do you tender or not tender? And no one's going to know whether you, what you do. Um, so it's a tricky situation. What I found quite interesting is I saw, you know, su- subsequent to the events of last week, and, and bear in mind that management, the NASPAS board, the process boards, they're all aware of the situation. So it's hardly like any of this is, is news to them. Um, I think, and, and therefore they understand how the balance of power works. So right now, um, you know, oppo- opposition to the transaction have few routes they can go. Um, obviously voice, co- you know, collective opposition voicing, uh, your concerns and hoping that that would at least land from a sense that this we think is, is that the management, the boards of NASPAS and process are prevailing over worsening governance and in an era that we live in today one would think that that should not be acceptable particularly for the non-execs to to want to um permit and perpetuate um and then and then secondly i see that nice management um and process management that's the same basically um are have you know mentioned today in, in one of the articles i read that they've had over 300 to 400 individual shareholder engagements in the last couple of weeks to address opposition now i found and that after those engagements people left un- understanding so i'm that's a bit perplexing to me as to that's unheard of that you would need to have that many engagements and why whatever they're saying is not why it can't be said publicly what is it that we're all missing um that that level of engagement is necessary and then suddenly concerns are laid uh, according to management feels a bit like they are bullying shareholders. Well, I think it comes down to the the underlying reality, which is um, something that's being dismantled globally, but still exists, obviously, in this business um, and these entities, which is uh, the control structures or the voting control structures. So in any other normal investment, um, shareholders would be able to vote, not just with their feet in terms of selling and exiting an, an investment, but actually vote. So if you, um, you know, if you were not happy with the situation, you could vote off a directive, you, you know, you could, you, your vote meant something. But in this structure, because the high voting shares sit in, in certain of the NASPAS class of shares, but, and, and, and the shares that all of us own are the end shares, which do not have the same level of vote. Um, we can't really do anything, you know, when it comes to voting. Um, and then obviously with this control structure that NASPAS owns and process, one can't do anything there either. Now, technically, you know, one would think that NASPAS should not be allowed to vote its shares because it's a related party in the process transaction. But that's not the case, according to the, uh, the Dutch law, or appears to be. So um, it, it does feel as though uh, management are very well aware that the shareholders, the outside shareholders or the minorities, as they tend to refer to, um, the, the shareholders have little in terms of actual rights so, all, you know, you can only, A, in this transaction, not tender your NASPAS shares or B, raise, you know, raise and voice your concerns with the hope that um, they would be heard. It appears that they're not being heard because there's nothing really that's changing the transaction. Well, they're heard, but they are apparently allayed behind closed doors. Well, when I look at the statement that they issued, they seem to say that they agree that it's a complex deal, but bad luck just 
deal with it. Yeah, I think uh, it was something as though uh, that it was complex in its in its put in the way it's put together, but it's not complex in its outcome. And um, you know, mm. so too bad it's complex. Um, it's it's much more than the complexity. It what it's what if we and that's why we always have to go back to the first principles, which is the first principle is there's a big discount that these businesses trade at. There are lots of reasons for why we believe that discount exists. We do not subscribe to the view that the discount exists for the, the reasons management advance, which is the high, the heavy weights that NASPAS has in the JSC. And as a result, uh, in putting forward this transaction, one disputes, it's contentious, you know, the, 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 the reasons advanced. And then secondly, um, we... We think the transaction does little to actually guarantee this so-called immediate value unlock or even any future sustainable value unlock. Um, and, and it can't simply be that a whole host of people are, are missing something that could be that plain to see. Um, and yeah, and I, and I guess that there, there is complexity here because one does understand that, um, you know, there, there could be more to the intent that exists that is not that is being stated, you know, not not that is actually being stated um, in the in the public announcement. So perhaps to that extent, one could consider that the South African or the you know the dissenting investors, of which are many, um, are are perhaps not in full you know arm of all the facts. Why do you think they don't care at all about how the minority shareholders view this transaction? I think they would say they care, which is why they had had the three to 400, um, you know, investor meetings. Um, it's largely because um, they've prevailed over an investment in an asset, well, particularly the chairman, you know, Kurs Becker, had did brilliantly to invest in this asset at a very low price, turned out to be one of the best investments, you know, around the world. And But wasn't that just luck maybe? He was well, in the right place at the right yeah, time. I it's think only been one investment that they've really done well at. And I think what, you know, subsequently the NASPAS and process structure is trying to set itself up to effectively be that venture capital fund that like repeats, the, you know, the 10 cent, you know, stupendous success. Um, up to this point, we haven't seen any evidence of it. And we haven't really seen the evidence of um, the, the value from being sitting on the board of 10 cent actually flowing through to the sort of, um, you know, uh, deals, deal flow that, that, that one should, actually, one should would have thought uh, could have flowed. Um, and so what you find is that you've, 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 you know, you've got a management team or, you know, a chair that's, you know, managed to expose South African and savers and grown, you know, savings through the, by virtue of this investment in Tencent um, and perhaps feels now, you know, that track record should speak for itself. Um, but I, the reality is that there is massive leakage because all of that profit, all of those dividends that are coming from Tencent on being invested in, you know, a whole what we call the rump of assets um, that are actually, frankly, losing money. And this is where the management alignment is unclear, is that management are still primarily aligned to um, performance that includes the performance of Tencent, and Tencent drowns out everything. Um, and so if management were much more aligned to their underlying actions, which was the non-Tencent assets, I think we would find a very different outcome, we would think, um, in the, the way the structure uh, persists. Delphine, before we close this conversation, what is your longer-term strategy here, assuming that uh, you don't win the first round? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting because, you know, as part of the collaboration, each, each, I mean, and they, and they weigh more than, you know, 36 fund managers that, that would be interested in. There's lots of globals. You know, there could be 50 or 70 or hundreds, actually. I mean, um, that would be, would have a view and, um, and each with a very kind of interesting next step view. And I think that's the, always the hard part in collaboration is agreeing what you do next. Um, and you don't have to necessarily agree together. You might agree, you know, individually. Um, and the collaboration kind of came together to this point to voice a collective concern, knowing that the next steps would really be left to um, individual investors, perhaps more groupings, etc. The, 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 the tricky thing with this is that for all the reasons I mentioned earlier is that they don't, you know, the, the company knows they don't need approval from the from the dissenting shareholders for this to proceed. Um, they have we could voice concerns over what we think is a very unfavorable exchange ratio because of the dis, the, the, the differing discounts. Um, but they have they have basically said that they're not going to change that. But again, that's the stance they have to take. Um, and ultimately, I think it gets to a point where. 
um, a shareholder has to decide, you know, is, is, is walking this journey with this company, um, given the way they, they take care of shareholders, um, given the way they make decisions about governance, um, is this a journey I want to continue on? And notwithstanding its size in the index, notwithstanding its size in, in, in what I have to manage against, you know, given its performance. Um, ultimately, to this point, obviously, index trackers don't have a choice. They have to be invested because they're passive. Active managers such as ourselves, you know, can decide at some point. Uh, this, I don't, I don't have a high level of confidence that continuing this journey is going to really result in that value unlock because I have to, you know, purchase a share alongside, um, many of these other governance kind of this murky governance um, and I'm going to require a discount. So maybe the irony is that I invest because there's a discount to a great asset, but I actually the probability of that discount unlocking given what I have to co-invest with in terms of the agreements and the transactions and the lack of control probably justifies a discount ironically. Um, and perhaps there's, you know, better investments in the market that, that are available. We're just unfortunate in South Africa that we have a very small market. So you end up having an asset that kind of crowds out in a bunch, you know, just a few assets that crowd out everything else. Um, and unfortunately, it's what, you know, clients look at. They look at the performance of the benchmark with, you know, these few shares dominating. Um, but ultimately it comes down to, um, is it as we are meant to be and we are responsible investors and we're stewards. And if anything, we've learned from the experiences of the last several years is that, um, you know, it's, it really has to be about having an ability to look your clients in the eye and say, this is the reason I was willing to continue. And then at which point, no, no more. I'm Tutuzile Masugu for Biz News. Trevor Manuel served as a cabinet minister under the first four presidents of Democratic South Africa and was one of the country's longest-serving finance minister. Finance and Development magazine spoke to Trevor Manuel reflecting on South Africa's last decade. The fact that we were compelled to live within our means, that I think was a big strength. You know, one of the issues that was fundamentally important was that cabinet has to act as a collective. It was the interpretation we gave to our constitution that the budget is the strongest statement of collective cabinet's responsibility. And so the responsibility of the finance minister to persuade colleagues of the correctness of the decision. And so the technical committees that were set up by the Treasury inviting other departments to come and explain what they wanted money for was very important. The way in which we processed that through the Minister's Committee on the Budget was important. That doesn't exist any longer. And that for me is the deep, deep, deep tragedy because the kind of decade of Jacob Zuma isn't just lost as though you stayed static. You, in fact, retrogressed in a number of areas because part of what Jacob Zuma tried to do was to take the Treasury apart. There was a sense that it's ideologically on the wrong side and it's too powerful. You need to take it apart. And that weakening has actually produced the outcomes that you now have. And if you look at how all of that has, has spun out of control, how the ability to collect taxes has been weakened, and how the overall allocative efficiency has been destroyed in the process. It's, it's a very, I mean, it may be the same party in power, but it's a very, very different country. So while South Africa did emerge from the international isolation under apartheid to become one of the world's most promising emerging markets, the economy has underperformed in recent years. Manuel says membership within the country's biggest labor union, COSATU, tells part of the story. You, you know, one of the big problems, and it drives, it drives all kinds of issues, probably 60% of COSATU members are public servants. Now, if you look at the pay scales for public servants in South Africa versus their peers at PPP averages and so on and so on. 
public servants in South Africa all do relatively well. But what that does is to take resources off the table. And so the state doesn't have the ability to deal with all the other issues. And I think that because corruption got out of hand, you kind of need a clean sweep of stuff before you can uh, move to the next base. And, you know, when we came in 94, when you were working in the Treasury, it wasn't because people working there were paid extraordinarily, but there was an esprit de corps that drove the pride that compelled people to deliver. And, and that is an essential part of driving change going forward. And it's when you have the sense of together you own the issues and you agree on how to drive the agenda, then you've got institutions that cannot live ministers. Then you're not dealing with, with ideological stuff, which I think is the millstone around the, the necks of South Africans. The sense of, of ideological purity is actually the biggest retardant to transformation. But 27 years into its democracy and economic transformation, South Africa is still one of the most unequal countries in the world. Extreme income disparities, unequal access to opportunities and education, and high unemployment have contributed to the persistence of inequality. It's an unbelievably difficult issue. So part of what you have to do is I think in the short term, be able to deal with the wherewithal of people. And so the ability to, to provide a social safety net is of paramount importance. It's very broken in South Africa. And the other thing is to repeatedly examine what we call the social wage. It's the quality of education. It's the quality of health care. It's whether your welfare system actually works for people who need it most. It's, it's unemployment benefits for workers. It's all of those things. And it's also how, how cities and towns run. And if people have access to clean water, sanitation and refuse collection and so on and so on. And if you provide the environment where learning and teaching can take place, students do better. And I, I have no doubt, you know, I still am, am involved with um, education in a place called Mitchell's Plain. And when I look at the top schools there, I mean, there was a school that had 100% pass rate in grade 12. There was a school that had 99.2%. You know, for me, that, that is worth celebrating because it's a very poor community and, and you've got these results. Next door in a very tough informal settlement um, called Kosovo, uh, there was one youngster who got 100% for physics. And this kid, when he was interviewed, was crying because Kosovo is so hard. It has the highest homicide rate in the country. And he, he was talking about how bullets fly and so on and so on, night after night, and how you study uh, in that environment. If you don't fix those kinds of things, people don't feel good about themselves and, and uh, uh, you're going to battle to deal with issues of, of equality going forward. Social capital is a, is a very hard, hard issue to compute. But you know it, you can see it. You can see it in the confidence of young people when they come through the system, how they build networks, where they build networks, how it empowers them to be able to do all kinds of things in society. And without that, you're not going to be able to drive change. As some regions are showing signs of an eventual recovery from the pandemic, countries in Africa are still scrambling for resources to support their struggling economies many already burdened with dangerously high debt levels. Trevor Manuel says the G20's Debt Service Suspension Initiative, or DSSI, was welcome, but more needs to be done to help cover the gap in funding for the response to the pandemic. So the first and obvious target was to try and deal with what still is a major risk, and that is 
the amount of money in debt service costs that flows off the continent. In terms of, of economic development, it obviously has uh, a big minus sign in front of it. Um, we were working then with a number of around $35 billion per annum, but finance ministers have actually been working on a number closer to $43 billion. And that became the first and obvious issue that we needed to talk about with the world. And the obvious place was with the IMF and with the G20. And it's out of that initiative that the DSSI was born. Now, we can celebrate the fact that $5 billion was, was saved from leaving the continent. But $5 billion is a far cry from uh, the initial 35 that we were talking about. And if you look in aggregate at, at um, low-income countries and middle-income countries, uh, uh, what their debt service costs amounts to, it's about uh, $356 billion. I mean, that's, that's the amount in play. And so what, what the 35 does is all that it is is money that, that actually you build a weir and you retain. It's like water retained and and hopefully governments would spend and we've had a lot of communication about things like the acquisition of of what is needed for the pandemic and we've had discussion about social safety nets because the issue of hunger is a is a paramount importance across the country but you also need some kind of stimulus because the economies just sort of went into a concrete wall and you need to breathe life into these economies again. And so support by way of a stimulus is fundamentally important. Now, uh, the question of debt is, I mean, debt is the first issue and the, the debt service costs and the DSSI, which I'm saying uh, in 2020 amounted to $5 billion. It's a drop in the, in the ocean. So there was a debt relief program launched by the IMF and the World Bank in the late 90s called the Heavily Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, or HIPIC for short, and it was to ensure that no poor country would face a debt burden it couldn't manage. Trevor Manuel says it really did help restore economies, which meant they were able to access capital markets, and many of them cut their dependence on concessional loans. So HIPIC was fundamentally important, but now you're dealing with major exogenous issues. You're dealing with circumstances where across the continent, as a result of very tough decisions, the, the macroeconomic circumstance in virtually every country had been restored to, if not good health, then at least reasonable health. And there's a curiosity about this because as countries improved on their performance, they were able to cut their dependence on Bretton Woods financing, and they were able to access capital markets differently. But that meant that, that other issues entered the equation, issues such as credit ratings. And, I mean, one of the things that we picked up in the past year is that the rating agencies are the rating agencies. I mean, you know, we called them out in 2008 for uh, being lax about U.S. banks and the consequences. But uh, they're pretty resolute. And, and what we found even on the DSSI, that there are countries who are desperately in need of debt relief, but are afraid that once they apply, they're going to be downgraded. So it's a, it's a bit of a catch-22. You know, part of what the world needs is a kind of group of leaders who will, who will take stock of the situation and then make a call. Trevor Manuel grew up in a segregated city on the proverbial wrong side of the tracks, and it shaped his career in Cape Town's resistance movement, which ultimately landed him in jail under the apartheid regime. 
But Manuel says his upbringing instilled a strong sense of responsibility and dedication to help improve the lives of the people he serves. I think that there's something that gets to you that says, I won't let circumstances get me down. There are people who I can't let down in the process. I said at my mother's funeral last year, I said, you know, she was always present in my life when, when I was going to make a big speech. I would actually, I would be talking to my mother. She would be in the audience. And, and what would matter to me is, am I talking to her? Can she understand what I'm saying? Because, I mean, can I talk big economics? Of course I can. But do I need to be understood? That's a lot more important for me because that's what makes sense in life. It's those little things that, that around which you build something that says you can't let the side down. So for those of our family who sit in Washington in the IMF, you can't let the side down. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.